Hey, a Penknife listeners, Corey here. I again got stuck with the task of bothering you to help us promote the show. This season was both extremely time-consuming and costly, and if you like what you're hearing and want more Penknife, please help us out by doing one or more of the following. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us right now, tell your friends both in person, if that still happens, and on social media, and if you can spare a few bucks a month, please support us at patreon.com penknife. Thanks for suffering through my spiel. Here's the show. I hope you enjoy it. Hey there, Ramon and Santi. Hello, Corey. Hi, Corey. So remember how we ended the last show talking about how Joe Orton found his voice in prison when he was separated from Kenneth Halliwell for the first time in over a decade? Right. The detached, I went to jail, so I'm no longer giving a fuck internal editor be damned voice. That one. This is how that voice sounded in his first post-prison work, The Ruffian on the Stair, which was turned into a radio play by the BBC in 1964. Did you enjoy your breakfast? What? Did you enjoy your breakfast? The egg was nice, wasn't it? The eggs are perfect now that I have that timer. Have you noticed? The marmalade was nice. Did it go down well? The, the egg was nice. It sounds good to me. Bleak, British, nice. It also happens to sound a bit like the beginning of Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. I got your cornflakes ready. Here's your cornflakes. Are they nice? Very nice. I thought they'd be nice. Oh, well, so much for finding his own voice. Well, yes and no. There's definitely a bit, or a bit more than a bit, of Pinter in his first radio play, and again in his first major work, Entertaining Mr. Sloan. But they each have a humor and a mischievousness that's entirely Joe's own, and that would continue to develop in the next several years with the anarchic farces Loot and What the Butler Saw. They were so unique, so thoroughly new and scandalous to the stiff upper lip English theater-going world that they inspired a new word, Orton-esque, which has since been applied to Monty Python, Sacha Baron Cohen, Martin McDonough, and countless other comedians since. When we interviewed the theatre scholar Simon Shepard, he said he found it heartening that Orton and Halliwell's early 1950s era work was so bad and derivative. Now, Ruffian on the Stair is not bad at all. In fact, I think it ranks just one small step beneath his three major plays. But it is derivative. The first version is a sort of comedy of menace that is in many ways more Pinteresque than Ortonesque. But yeah, I also find it heartening that despite the conventional narrative, where Orton emerges from jail having found his voice, he was actually still turning over rocks looking for it. He only lived another five years after getting out of jail, and selfishly, I think the fact that he didn't have more time to hone that voice is one of the saddest parts of this story. But as we'll see in this episode, even for someone with his talent, success didn't come easy. He had to work for it. But that first acceptance letter helped. Makes you wonder what might have become of Kenneth Halliwell if only the BBC had taken one of his plays. Or if, even in the absence of pats on the back, he could have stopped seeing himself as a failure. Yeah, he probably would have been a bit happier. Might have been a bit less dead as well. Well, with that said, my name is Santiago Lemoyne, and I'm a bookseller and writer from Buenos Aires who, today, will pass no judgment on his own writerly success or lack thereof. And I'm Corey Eastwood. And I'm a bookseller and writer, just plain old writer, from New York. And I'm Ramona Stout. I live in Greece, and I'm also just a plain old writer. 
You're listening to episode four of season two of Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. Ruffian on the Stair is about a young man named Wilson who shows up at a couple's apartment and begins menacing them. In time, we learn that the reason he's there is that the husband has run over and killed a man who Wilson calls his brother. He was living with this man, and it's implied that they were lovers. The funny thing is that it was the BBC that made Orton change it to brother instead of just friend, which was brilliant because then, in addition to them being gay lovers, they were also committing incest. And what makes it even weirder for audiences in 1964, and what's so great about Orton is that he doesn't let Wilson fall into any gay stereotype. Yes, there were gay characters in plays before The Ruffian on the Stair, but they were generally portrayed as being either effeminate queens, there for the audience to laugh at, or tragic cases afflicted by the disease of homosexuality, there to be pitied. Wilson is neither flamboyant nor pitiable. He's tough, threatening, and the thing about him that most intimidates audiences is his sexual ambiguity. This is common of Orton's characters, and it's deliberate. Because if gay men don't always wear earrings and talk in high voices, then you might not know it when you see one. They can be anyone, anywhere. They can be bricklayers and school teachers, police officers, presidents, even fathers. Orton's giving homophobes something to fear. When he rewrites the play for the stage three years later, Orton scratches the pin to breakfast bit at the beginning and in its place puts some dialogue that's truly classic Orton. Rather than discussing the niceness of marmalade and eggs, the play opens with the woman asking her husband, Have you got an appointment today? Yes, I'm to be at King's Cross Station at 11. I'm meeting a man in the toilet. You always go to such interesting places. Instead of the previous focus on quotidian banality, we begin with this strange jolt. It's meant to be played absolutely naturally. No camp, no wink-wink or humor in their voices. It's meant to mess with the audience. For people in the know, it can be taken as a reference to cottaging or gay sex in public laboratories. But regardless of whether or not people understand the reference, the effect for many a square, straight British theatre-goer of the 1960s is highly unnerving. And that's exactly Orton's intention. After the first broadcast of Ruffian in August 1964, Orton writes a preemptive defense of his work for the Radio Times. In a world run by fools... The writer can only chronicle the doings of fools or their victims. And because the world is a cruel and heartless place, he will be accused of not taking his subject seriously. But laughter is a serious business, and comedy a weapon more dangerous than tragedy. Which is why tyrants treat it with caution. The actual material of tragedy is equally viable in comedy. Unless you happen to be writing in English when the question of taste occurs. The English are the most tasteless nation on earth, which is why they set such store by it. Shortly after putting the finishing touches on Ruffian for the BBC, Orton sends his next play to an agent, Peggy Ramsey, who likes it and agrees to represent him. Ramsey, a former actress and opera singer, plays a very influential role in the English theatre world, and her name is worth keeping in mind because she's going to play an important role in this story as well. Anyway, she passes Joe's new work called Entertaining Mr Sloan to Michael Codron, who was the first to produce Pinter, and a few months later it's showing at the New Arts Theatre in Westminster, central London. But it won't be at the New Arts for long. 
During its first week, the playwright and screenwriter, Sir Terence Rattigan, goes to see it with Vivian Lee, the actress who played Scarlett O'Hara and Blanche Dubois, and they absolutely love it. Rattigan makes some phone calls, invests some cash, and in short time, entertaining Mr. Sloan is being transferred to the West End, which, for you American listeners, is essentially London's version of Broadway. Entertaining Mr. Sloan begins with a handsome, manipulative, rough-round-the-edges young man named Sloan renting a room from an older woman named Kath, who lives with her father. From the start, Kath is infatuated with Sloan, and eventually she, in Orton's words, has the trousers off of him. Then her brother Ed appears, and it becomes clear that he too wants to have the trousers off of him. Eventually, the father recognises Sloan as the man who murdered his boss, to keep the old man quiet, Sloane then murders him, and instead of calling the police, Kath and her brother Ed blackmail Sloane into agreeing to a sort of sexual timeshare between the two of them. Perfectly reasonable. Protect the man who murdered your father as long as he agrees to allow you and your brother a shag here and there. Yeah, not a bad deal. But when you look at the fine print, I actually don't think it's very fair for Kath. They plan on taking him for six months at a time, and at play's end, Kath, who found him and who was, by the way, pregnant with his baby, has to wait six months for more of Sloane's sweet lovin'. The cruel injustice of it all. It has audience members outraged. Well, not really. They are outraged, but not over the details of the characters' sexual arrangements. This is England, in 1964, after all, and this kind of content is, to say the least, provocative. It's called absolutely filthy. A disturbing and terrible thing, shameless and repulsive in the extreme. A telling letter to the editor published in the Daily Telegraph from a man named Peter Pinnell read, Sir, in finding so much to praise in entertaining Mr. Sloan, which seems to be nothing more than a highly sensationalized, lurid, crude and overdramatized picture of life at its lowest, surely your drama critic has taken leave of his senses. Shortly thereafter, a woman named Edna Wellthorpe added to the pylon with her letter to the editor. Sir, as a playgoer of 40 years, may I sincerely agree with Peter Pinnell in his condemnation of entertaining Mr. Sloan. I myself was nauseated by the endless parade of mental and physical perversion, and to be told that such a disgusting piece of filth now passes for humour. Today's young playwrights take it upon themselves to flaunt their contempt for ordinary decent people. I hope that ordinary decent people will shortly strike back. Edna Walthorpe, Mrs. The fascinating thing about these two ordinary decent people, Peter and Edna, is that they're both pen names for one John, Joe, Orton, and they aren't alone. While Aunt Edna Walthorpe is his favourite persona, who will continue to appear over the years outraged by Joe's plays and, among other things, the raspberry content in Smedley's Raspberry Pie Filling, Joe adopts a number of other pen names both to prank unsuspecting pie companies and variously attack and champion his own plays. And when he praises himself, he doesn't hold back. One Orton character, Alan Crosby, says of Sloane, A. The dialogue brilliant. B. The comedy breathtaking. C. The drama satisfying. D. The play as a whole, well written, if not profound. And this is before the internet. These days, when you're reading any review of, say, a restaurant or a podcast, you have to assume that at least a couple of the positive reviews are fake. Gift to the first listener who points out which of the Penknife iTunes reviews were written by us. The point here is that Orton relishes the negative reviews and capitalizes on the controversy they create. Sloan is a deliberate attack on the sexual repression and hypocrisy of so-called ordinary, decent people. An advertisement for the West End production reads, Warning, this play is not suitable for the narrow-minded. 
No, it's not. But this is the 60s, and there's another portion of the population, a steadily growing one, for which it's most definitely suited. By 1964, post-war austerity and food rationing are distant memories. Unemployment is low, and just about every British household now has a TV. The Beatles are embarking on their first world tour, and the Stones are playing their first concerts in the US. Add to that James Bond, Mary Poppins, go-go boots and miniskirts, and the 60s British invasion is in full swing. London is the place to be. In a couple of years, Paul McCartney will sing I've got to admit, it's getting better, a little better, all the time. And though part of the song is about John Lennon not hitting his wife anymore, the general sentiment of change, and change for the better, rings true for society as a whole. After nearly a decade and a half in control, the Conservatives finally lose, and the new Labour government will, in the next years, oversee the legalisation of abortion, the decriminalisation of homosexuality, and the abolition of the death penalty. But of course, none of this comes without a fight. The UK is in the midst of a radical cultural shift, and many a decent, ordinary person is opposed to it. Newspaper headlines that year fan the flames of moral panic. The mods and rockers are fighting in the streets. The Moors murderers are prowling Manchester. Parliament is rushing to pass laws against the skyrocketing use of amphetamines and cannabis. And the Profumo affair has Brits convinced that while banning drugs, those very same MPs are regularly doing them while engaging in massive orgies. Uh, nothing like a great British orgy. A sea of pale flesh and beer bellies. The sides are clearly drawn. The short skirt-wearing, abortion and gay sex-having murdering mods versus the decent, ordinary, god, queen and country-loving citizens. Who will win? Well, in 1964 it still wasn't clear. As with the exception of the abolishment of capital punishment, which is made law in 65, the other progressive reforms are still a few years away. It was in this context that Joe Orton's plays filled with amoral, sexually ambiguous characters sent decent, ordinary people scurrying for the exits and are continually censored by the Lord Chamberlain. All right, so I have to interject and admit that when I first started reading about Lord Chamberlain censoring Joe Orton, I thought that maybe I was wrong about Neville Chamberlain being dead by then. I mean, I thought he died during the war, but my British history is fuzzy at best. So as I read about Lord Chamberlain demanding that Orton cut this scene here and that line there, I just figured it was the former prime minister as an extremely old and morally righteous man sitting there with a red pen reading over Orton's scripts filled with homosex and murder while blushing with anger and perhaps a cheeky bit of scintillation. <laughs> yeah, not quite. The office of the Lord Chamberlain was a censorship body responsible for keeping filth off the stage until it was abolished in 1968, thus opening the door for filth to flourish. Just as the BBC tried to tone down Orton with Ruffian and actually made it worse by making the lovers brothers, in Sloan, Lord Chamberlain makes a number of cuts to the heterosexual content, no touching of breasts or simulated sex, for example. But given that the homosexual content is all written in innuendo, because again, homosexuality is still illegal, it's all allowed to remain in the play. Entertaining Mr. Sloan is Orton's most autobiographical work, and the character Sloan is the character most based on himself. Charming and tough, Sloan embodies a James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause kind of sex appeal. And that's basically how Orton sees himself. As we've already heard, his appearance is quite important to him. 
He loves soaking up the great British sun to work on his tan, and takes great pride in being a writer who works out. In his words, I shall be the most perfectly developed of modern playwrights, if nothing else. And when a reporter asks him why he's included a new drawing of himself in the program for his 1967 double bill of Crimes of Passion, he responds, There are many people who might like a nude picture of me. I'm not unattractive, you know. Sloane's sex appeal isn't the only thing he shares with his creator. Though outmaneuvered at the end of the play, Sloane is very skilled in the art of manipulation, and according to Patrick Dromgoole, the director of the first production of Entertaining Mr. Sloane, Orton himself was, quote, a slippery bloke to talk to, a charmer, a manipulator. He could put on any face. He'd got the withdrawn, almost godly posture of the true ironist who genuinely finds most things funny. He wasn't really with you. He'd fit his statements about life to his assessment of your character. Despite many a Wealthorpian naysayer, Sloane is a great success, and so is Joe Orton. One critic says that Sloane has, quote, flashes of wit, which at their best can match Oscar Wilde. And another compares Orton to Jane Austen for his keen eye for absurdities. Not only is the play going to be published in book form, but it's also just been included in Penguin's anthology of new English dramatists. Ah, uh, yes, those anthologies that are absolutely impossible to sell. Like all drama, for that matter. Drama. Every bookstore's worst-selling section. I mean, even chess sells better than it. Numerology, crystals, astrology, well, especially astrology. UFOs. Huge. Physics, believe it or not. Math. Math's numbers would surprise you. Mm, gardening. Gardening, that's a good one too. History? Ah, you got us there. Drama sales tops histories any day. Nobody cares about history. So, while Orton doesn't quite get rich off the publication, he also sells the rights for a production in Paris. And soon the play will be performed in Spain, Israel, Australia, and the U.S., where once again the Americans aren't ready for it, and it bombs. Regardless, Orton's days of living on £3.10 a week are over. Okay, at this point you might be wondering how Kenneth Halliwell is taking Joe's success. Well, he might even object to the question and say that the success isn't Joe's alone. After all, entertaining Mr. Sloan is dedicated to Kenneth, and both he and Joe, well, at least when Joe speaks privately, refer to it as our play. This evidently gives Kenneth a sense of ownership over the script, and he can often be found at rehearsals rocking his classic black beret and trademark scowl while demanding to be included in all the creative decisions. Then later complaining that Joe's spending too much time at the theatre. In the misogynistic and homophobic fashion of the day, the stagehands label him Mrs. Orton, when Terence Rattigan tries to make small talk backstage and asks him, where do you go when you go out with Joe? Halliwell responds, curtly, I don't go out with Joe Orton, I go in. <laughs> well, if that's not Orton-esque, I don't know what is. This is the same Kenneth Halliwell who will come up with the title for Joe's next play, Loot, and later with Prick Up Your Ears, which is to be the name of the play Orton is beginning at the time of his death. This title will eventually be used by John Lahr for his 1978 biography on Orton, and again in the 1987 Orton Halliwell biopic, based on the biography and starring Gary Oldman as Orton and Alfred Molina as Halliwell. Prick up your ears is a pun, obviously, but can anyone think of how it's actually a triple pun? I'm going to pause right now and give you clever listeners a few seconds to figure it out.
Well, obviously it means one, pay attention, and two, a literal penis in your ears, plural, which seems a bit odd and uncomfortable, as in theory it's one penis in both ears. <laughs> it's just like that great scene in Scary Movie 1. I haven't seen it. Well, you're missing out. Basically, Sean Waynes makes the fatal mistake of trying to listen into a glory hole and gets skewered to death by an extra long schlong. What are you talking about? <laughs> Literal prick up your ears. The pun. Anyhow, for the, for the third meaning, uh, I got nothing. Ramona? Nope. Hint? Yeah, please. Anagram. Anagram. Arse. Ears is an anagram for arse. Prick up your arse. Touché. Pay attention, take it up your ears, and take it up your arse. Or as we like to say in my country, ass. Or culo, as we say in my country. In any case, despite butting heads with people backstage, <laughs> what matters is that Joe still loves him, and they continue to be somewhat of a literary team. As I said, Kenneth is still coming up with titles, and he remains important to Joe's editing process. But something serious has changed in their relationship. For over a decade, Orton and Halliwell had failed together. They'd failed as actors, then as writers, and over the years, their failure had taken them farther and farther outside of the society they'd rejected. In those years of rice and sardines and rice and golden syrup, or whatever that word Ramona used, Treacle. their world had shrunk to the point where it was almost just the two of them. But no matter how much of a hermit or iconoclast one is, success makes it hard to remain on the outside. Just like, say, Cormac McCarthy on Oprah. Right. And as Orton embraces his success, the problem isn't so much that he doesn't try to take Kenneth along, because he does try, but rather that he leaves failure behind abandoning Kenneth in that comfortable, albeit poor and frustrated place outside of it all where they've lived for so long. In their last co-written novel, The Boy Hairdresser, the Halliwell stand-in, who's a failed artist and is about to attempt murder, asks, Which is worse, fruitless running or aimless drifting? Evil to look back on, nothing to look forward to, and pain in the present. For Joe, there's no longer any fruitless running or aimless drifting, and all of a sudden, the present's bright. The future even brighter. A bright spotlight shining on Kenneth's continued failure and bald dome. The genre of farce is defined as a comic dramatic work using buffoonery and horseplay and typically includes crude characterization and ludicrously improbable situations. While Sloan contains elements of farce, Orton's next work, Loot, will go full throttle farce and reinvigorate the outdated genre for the second half of the 20th century. This is Richard Curzon-Smith, director of the 2017 documentary Joe Orton, Laid Bare. What Orton was trying to do was to use, uh, to use an outmoded form, 19th century farce, to connect with a kind of, to make a response in an audience that is almost involuntary. And you do it by just repeated hit, hit after hit after hit after hit after hit, and it becomes delirious. And in that delirium, you unravel. And I think that that's the beauty, which is why these things don't tend to work in films. They do tend to work on the stage because there's, there's, there's no oxygen in there. You can't pace them. You just have to look at them and they just come. They come at you like, a, you know, like an assault. In Loot, there's no need to assault the central character because she's already dead. The play centers around the funeral arrangements for the mother of a family. Her son, Hal, and his friend Dennis have just robbed a bank next to the funeral home where Dennis works. 
They then hide the money in the dead mother's coffin, removing her corpse to make room for all the cash. The two young men are accompanied on stage by a greedy, murderous nurse, an even greedier and utterly corrupt detective, Hal's father who trusts blindly in church and state, and of course, the mother whose dead body gets bandied about the stage throughout the show. Picture a funnier 1960s stage version of Weekend at Bernie's, and you'll have an idea of what loot is all about. Orton's work is largely known as being an attack on sexual prudery and hypocrisy, and in many ways, loot is more of the same. It's implied that Hal and his friend Dennis, neither of whom signal any effeminate gay stereotypes, are sleeping together, while Dennis is also sleeping with the murderous nurse. Orton wasn't an activist, but he was definitely a playwright with an agenda. He explains it by saying, The only field still heavily unexplored is the sexual one. And later in his journal, when planning edits to his final play, What the Butler Saw, he writes, Sex is the only way to infuriate them. Much more fucking, and they'll be screaming hysterics in next to no time. 55 years later, when Broadway now has plays like Slave Play, where sex is far from the most transgressive aspect of the show, Orton's work can definitely feel a bit outdated. In 2022, there's no longer anything shocking about homosexual innuendo, nor characters swapping sex partners. But Lute goes a step further. Along with attacking authority, both that of the church and the police, the play also satirizes 20th century death rites. And while we're bombarded by images of violent and comedic death in action and superhero movies, I think there's still something taboo about making light of the actual rituals that accompany death. That is, if the play is performed the way it's supposed to be. The first production of Luke completely bombs, because instead of interpreting the lines with the realism that Orton intended, the director applies a tone of faux formality, which gives it a goofy feel and takes all the sting out of the humour. For the play to work, the audience mustn't be able to shrug it off as just a Weekend at Bernie's-esque laugh. The humour Orton's going for is in discomfort. He wants people wriggling in their seats. He feels that this is more important than laughter. His production notes for Ruffian, which could equally be applied to Lute, and all of his plays for that matter, read... The play is clearly not written naturalistically, but it must be directed and acted with absolute realism. No stylization, no camp, no attempt, in fact, to match the author's extravagance of dialogue with extravagance of direction. Every one of the characters must be real. None of them is ever consciously funny. Every line should be played with desperate seriousness and a complete lack of any suggestion of humour. Only in this way can a mixture of comedy and menace be achieved. So Joe keeps rewriting, bulking up the plot, refining the dialogue, and submitting script changes on a nearly daily basis. He's fond of quoting Oscar Wilde, Talent is the infinite capacity for taking pains. And in these early weeks of loot, Orton is taking plenty of pains. They're touring throughout England in preparation for what they hope will be a long run in London's West End. But early reviews are horrible, and the play is most noteworthy for the controversy it generates. On opening night in Bournemouth, two dozen old ladies storm out in protest of dialogue which, quote, uses the word brothel and which satirizes patriotism, death, and the law. Here's audio of Joe himself describing it on the Eamon Andrews show. With audiences as well, haven't you? Oh, well, yes, because people said, I mean, we, we were at Bournemouth and um, one usherette was reported as saying that it was unnecessarily filthy. 
as if there really was a necessary amount of filth. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, people used to walk out, Bournemouth this was, and sometimes you couldn't hear the dialogue for the slamming of the seat. <laughs> and what, what, what about... That's funny, but the play itself isn't even funny enough to make it to London. It's cancelled by the time it gets to Wimbledon. Actor Kenneth Williams of Carry On Films fame, who plays the role of the corrupt detective, calls it a legendary failure, a great big flop. Joe retreats to Morocco to lick his wounds and get a proper tan. With the Sloan flop on Broadway and Lute's failure in England, it looks as if his shooting star might just be about burnt out. But then director Brom Murray picks up the rights to Lute and understands that it's as much horror as it is comedy, and that the comedy is only funny if it's dark, as dark as possible, black even. When we think of Orton, he's often credited as reinvigorating farce, but he should also be thought of as one of the founders of contemporary black comedy. Joking about death and dark subjects is age-old, obviously, but the term was only coined in 1940, by the surrealist André Breton in his Anthologie de l'Humour Noir, in which he names Jonathan Swift as the father of the genre. In English, the term reached mainstream usage in 1965, with Bruce J. Friedman's Black Humor Anthology, which contained writers such as Nabokov, Joseph Heller, and Céline. Lute, a play in which the mother's eyeball pops out of her head and rolls around the stage, and her son tries to convince the cop that his mom's corpse is actually a mummy, was written in 64, a year before the American Anthology came out. Comedy doesn't get much blacker than loot, and it's definitely part of the lineage that brought us Richard Pryor, Louis C.K., and Ricky Gervais. The new director understands Orton's mischievous and anarchic vision of black humour farce. He cuts out all goofy elements, makes it as naturalistic as possible, and it works. Loot finally makes it to London, and reviews are absolutely rave. Among other praise, The Observer calls Orton the Oscar Wilde of welfare state gentility. His response to all this praise is classic Orton. I have a lot of vices, but false modesty is not one of them. The best thing about Lude is the quality of the writing. After nearly two years of struggling to get it right, Lude is now unstoppable. Soon, newspaper headlines will read, Ex-prisoner sells play for £100,000. At this point, it's one of the highest prices ever paid for the screen rights of a play. The film version of Loot, which doesn't come out until 1970, is a flop. Again, the director chooses to play it campy. And the play turns out to be just as much a failure on Broadway as Sloan was. Again, the Americans just don't get it. They still don't get it. Dumbed-down version of the US office, case in point. But no matter. Jordan's found fame, money, and that ineffable thing we writers like to call a voice. In the next and last ten months of his life, he'll write and rewrite the majority of his work in this new voice. How do you like your new voice? It's nice. And your money? That's nice, isn't it? The money is very nice. Yeah, the money is most definitely nice. After Joe gets his first real paycheck for entertaining Mr. Sloan, he buys his boyfriend Kenneth Halliwell a wig. His agent, Peggy Ramsey, says the wig gives the now 38-year-old Halliwell, who's been bald since he was age 23, a newfound confidence. Quote, he became rather charming and sincere, so that I forgot my first alarmed reaction to his personality. If she'd said this today, she would have had to watch herself. An employment tribunal in England just ruled that calling a man bald is sexual harassment. The hairless man in question won his case on the basis that while, quote, women as well as men may be bald, baldness is much more prevalent in men than women. 
What I find funny about the story is that the hairless man was actually denigrated as a bald cunt, but said he was less upset by the C-word than the comment on his appearance. So with the wig, not only did Halliwell stop being bald, but he also stopped being a cunt? Amazing what technology can do for us. The 60s were when the synthetic wig was invented, you know. It did for bald people what glasses did for the nearsighted. Total game changer. So now with Joe's money and a wig, I take it that Kenneth lives happily ever after? Not quite. In Tangier on May 25th, 1967, Orton writes about a conversation he had with Halliwell while they were both high on hash. We sat talking of how happy we both felt and how it couldn't surely last. We'll have to pay for it, or we'd be struck down from afar by disaster because we were perhaps too happy to be young, good-looking, healthy, famous, comparatively rich and happy is surely going against nature. I feel so content. I slept all night soundly and woke up at seven feeling as though the whole of creation was conspiring to make me happy. I hope no doom strikes. Soon, doom will strike. That's coming up on Penknife. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood, Ramona Stout, and me, Santiago Lemoine. Joe Oten is voiced by Lou Ellis. Special thanks in this episode to Richard Curson Smith, whose 2017 documentary, Joe Oten Laid Bare, is a great place to go if you're looking for more Oten and Halliwell. Penknife sound design, music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. Flor Lopez designed our website, penknifepodcast.com, where you can find a full bibliography of the works we used in researching this season. And a very special thanks to Mr. Ricker Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. If you're liking what you're hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do right now is to rate and review Penknife on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. And if you really like Penknife and want to hear more of it, please consider heading over to patreon.com penknife to support us. We'd hoped season two would be easier and cheaper to make than season one, but telling this story the way we thought it deserved to be told ended up being nearly as time-consuming and even more costly. We'd love to keep making Penknife, but to do so, we really need your help. Even a nice egg or two a month would go a long way. And regardless of whether or not you leave us a review or a few bucks, we thank you for listening. <laughs>